Good evening, and uh, welcome to this evening's lecture in the Ralph Miliband series. It's a series that's uh, started last term and will continue for the rest of the year on oil, energy, security, and the global order. And the speaker that follows you in a few weeks' time is David Miliband, who will be talking about this from the perspective of the British government and, the, of course, the Foreign Office. It's a particular pleasure to introduce Professor Lord Nicholas Stern, who will speak on the theme set out here, climate change, energy, and the way ahead. There's probably nobody better placed, probably, as they say in the advert about lager, probably nobody better placed to speak about these challenging and urgent intellectual and political and scientific problems than Nick Stern himself. He is the IG Patel Professor of Economics and Government here at the LSE, and he heads the New India Observatory within the LSE's Asia Research Centre, and he's also about to uh, co-found and establish a new ESRC centre at the LSE, for which he has won a very competitive bid, uh, focusing on climate change and the economics of climate change. From 2005 to 2007, he was advisor to the UK government on the economics of climate change and development, reporting to the Prime Minister and the Chancellor Exchequer. That must have been very interesting and head of the now famous, of course, Stern Report on the Economics of Climate Change. Before that, he was Chief Economist at the World Bank. His research and publications have focused on the economics of climate change, economic development and growth, economic theory, tax reform, public policy, and the role of the state and economies in transition. He has published more than 15 books and over 100 articles, and I wonder what he does in his spare time. Um, he told me uh, just in passing uh, before we uh, came in that he hasn't had a day off six since 1960, day off six since 1969, so it's clearly built into his physical as well as mental capacity. He was knighted for, the, for services to economics in um, June 2004 and became a member of the House of Lords, what now seems to be that peculiar outpost of the LSC, in December 2007. Please join me in giving him a very warm welcome. Thanks very much, uh, David, and thank you all very much for coming. Um, a couple of amendments to the introduction, which was, of course, extremely kind. Um, I, I didn't win an ESRC research centre. The LSC won um, an ESRC centre, and uh, its director will be Judith Rees, and there will be some uh, very strong contributions by everybody not everybody, but a large number of people across, across the school. And the only reason that you can uh, say that, what you did just say, is that the, LSE, the ESRC, with its usual uh, command of detail, um, leaked the, uh, themselves the, the announcement. So uh, you haven't broken any news there, but uh, you might have broken some news. Um, secondly, I uh, support AFC Wimbledon in my spare time. And I recommend non-league football to, uh, to you all. Um, now, um, I'm going to talk for most of the time about activities since the publication of the Stern Review and ideas and the way in which analysis and uh, politics and economics have moved since the publication of the Stern Review about nearly a year and a half ago now. Um, but I wanted to say at the beginning how important Ralph Miliband was uh, to my family. Sadly, I never met Ralph, 
um, I did work closely um, with David and Ed in government in different, uh, in different ways and very happily and cheerfully. But my mother was at the LSE uh, with Ralph Miliband studying uh, under Harold Lasky. Um, it clearly had a profound effect on them both. And uh, that was when, the t at the time, the school was evacuated to uh, Cambridge uh, during the war. So Ralph Miliband was a much-talked-about figure in, uh, in our family. A great man, as you know very well, David, is in, in many ways in your kind of area of analysis in terms of politics, particularly uh, Marxist uh, politics. Also a serious economist in his studies of um, marginal cost pricing in, uh, in, public, in public enterprise. Well known as a critic of the Vietnam War, he famously described uh, Harold Wilson's uh, support for um, the Vietnam War as the most shameful uh, chapter in the history of the Labour Party. And as I was sitting, um, of course that was way back, um, <laughs> uh, it's nice to be out of government. As I was, um, as I was sitting listening to Joe Stiglitz's uh, lecture on Monday night, um, tough if you missed it, but it's gone, um, I was reflecting, uh, it was on the cost of the Iraq war, the $3 trillion war, and that was just the cost of the United States of the uh, Iraq War. I couldn't help reflecting why I'd never asked uh, Ralph's sons uh, whether they thought there was the slightest element of analogy with some other war, but um, I didn't. But maybe we can ask them uh, later on when David uh, comes along. Um, so let me get on now. I'll go uh, pretty fast um, because there's lots to get through. This is an enormous uh, subject, and as I've remarked more than once in giving talks at the LSE, you can go fast because you're a very highly uh, selected uh, group. Now, um, let me begin with what I think is the most natural way to think about or to begin thinking about policy on climate change. And that is in terms of insurance, in terms of what kind of risks we buy down by investing a certain part or paying a certain part of our GDP um, it, to uh, reduce um, emissions and thereby reduce the stocks of greenhouse gases. And I think that's the best way to look at it. Describe what the effects of your actions are in terms of the kinds of risks that are involved and ask yourself the question, would you pay this much to reduce those risks? I think the answer is a resounding yes, and then you get on with it and look at the details of policy which could yield those reductions in a, uh, uh, an efficient and uh, equitable way as possible. So I think that's the right way to look at this. It's a story of uh, prudency about uh, uh, risk, of sensible policy towards risk. Now, what are the risks and how do they work? Let me remind you very quickly about how the whole climate change story works because I will be arguing that in the Stern Review uh, we probably underestimated the uh, costs of climate change. The first link in the chain is from people to emissions. It starts with people and ends in people, but the first link in the chain is people to emissions. That link, that uh, amount of emissions that people are producing each year, the flow of emissions that people are producing each year, uh, I think we um, seriously underestimated, at least if you look at the next 20 or 30 years. The next link in the chain is from the flow of emissions to the increase in stocks of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. The increase in stocks of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere resulting from any flow in emissions is shaped in large, um, is shaped in large measure um, by the absorptive capacity of the planet. Uh, key to that is the carbon cycle. 
it seems that, um, if anything, we uh, overestimated the ability of the planet to absorb flows of uh, greenhouse gases, and thus uh, we underestimated the increment in stocks of greenhouse gases that would result from any flow of emissions. The next step in the chain goes from uh, stocks to temperatures. Now, that is, as all these, all these links are, they're, they're stochastic, they're random, you can only describe them in a probabilistic way, um, but the link from the stocks of greenhouse gases um, to temperature uh, to uh, the temperature increase, uh, I think that we, if anything, that's influenced by the, uh, the sensitivity of the climate sensitivity. Um, that, I think, if anything, we underestimated the weight in the tails. In other words, there are higher probabilities of any given nasty region than we actually anticipated or that we used in the modeling. Now, the next link in the chain is from temperatures to climate change. Temperatures have consequences for climate change. Most of climate change has its uh, impact in terms of water in some shape or form. Storms, floods, droughts, sea level rise, obviously central to that. I think we're now seeing that the link between temperature and climate change is fiercer than we thought. And we're seeing that the link between climate change and people is probably again more unpleasant than we thought. Um, think of the impacts of the uh, record floods uh, in, in Bihar, for example, uh, last summer, or in um, uh, West Central Africa also uh, last year. Uh, think of the, um, of the impact of the cyclone in, um, in Bombay in 2005 and so on. These, I think, are tougher than we thought at the time. Now, we were conservative because we didn't want to be accused of scaremongering, and we were indeed accused of uh, scaremongering. Um, but that, I think, is totally misplaced if you look at the way in which uh, we did it and the kind of ways in which all the evidence as it comes in is showing that uh, we, un we underestimated the risks. But that's the process. And as I've described it, I've not only <clears throat> described the logical structure of the simple science, I've also um, emphasized, as it's absolutely clear, that every step in this uh, chain is stochastic. Every step in the chain involves lots of risk and uncertainty. This is all about risk and uncertainty and how we deal with it. It's not simply an investment project with this rate of return to be compared with other, other investment projects with that rate of return. The uncertainty has to be at the heart of the analysis. So let me uh, get on quickly and uh, tell that, uh, that story. This is the nasty things that happen as uh, temperature increases. I've already emphasized that water is absolutely central to that. Of course, the ecosystems matter a great deal too. And the uncertainty in the weather events themselves, um, given the climate, are, of course, a big part of the story as well. The unpleasantness increases as we move over to the right. The things we're already seeing now are phenomena associated with uh, temperature increases below one degree C. The uh, temperature increase and any temperature increase is measured relative to the middle of the 19th century, pre-industrial times, um, in, this, uh, in this talk. We're seeing the effects of temperature increases a little less than one degree C. We're going to see, however sensible we are, um, temperature increases of probably a two or more relative to pre-industrial times, given the starting point that we have, which arises from uh, past emissions. So um, we're going to have to cope with uh, a great deal of climate change and the adaptation story 
uh, adapting to those changes is absolutely fundamental. Let me emphasize that at the start because I'm not going to say very much about it today. That's a, another lecture and a very big and important one. But we have to note that there's a lot of climate change coming that we're going to have to adapt to one way or the other. What we're playing for here is keeping the probability of going way above two degrees or two and a half degrees uh, down. That's the name of the game. How can we keep that probability of shifting right out there to the right? How can we keep that down? Well, let's first start to look at uh, some of uh, the evidence on um, the probability of those very nasty things happening. Now, these are confidence intervals. The red is a confidence interval for the eventual temperature increase associated with a given stock of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It's the stock of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that traps the heat and raises the temperature and changes the climate. But it's the flow into the atmosphere that we can uh, influence um, through our policies. <clears throat> so um, we are around 430 parts per million of CO2 equivalent. Uh, we used to be around 280 uh, in the middle of the 19th century. So we've already added um, 430 minus 280, we've already added around 150 parts uh, per million. Now, what this diagram shows is the confidence intervals if we stabilized at these given uh, temperatures. So, uh, if we stabilized at 550, the confidence interval stretches from a bit below uh, 2 degrees centigrade to a bit above 5 degrees centigrade. The probability of going above 5 degrees centigrade, according to the models underlying, underlying this red bar, uh, would be around 7%. I'll explain what these probabilities mean in just a moment. Um, these are confidence intervals, 90% confidence intervals. So there's a probability of 5% of being off the bottom end, the probability of 5% being off the top end. So that shows that uh, you have to, you can't say we must limit to 2 degrees centigrade. You have to talk about the probabilities of uh, 2 degrees centigrade and how you can make them more favourable. And similarly, if you talk about 3 degrees centigrade and, uh, and so on. Now, we're adding 2.5 parts per million a year and that 2.5 parts per million uh, is rising. Um, but you can see that uh, starting from around 430 parts per million, if we let go uh, under business as usual for another 30 or 40 years, we'd already be at uh, 550 parts per million. Um, or close to. And, of course, you can't stop these things in their tracks. Um, we would be headed for something much higher than that. So that makes it clear how important timely action is on this. Because if we wait and see for 30 or 40 years till we discover lots more technology and lots more about the science of climate change, we'll already be in to uh, very dangerous uh, territory. So... This is a very urgent problem that comes out simply just from looking at the stocks, looking at the flows and looking at these probability distributions. Um, if we go on as business as usual, um, not doing much about climate change to the end of the century, we'll be down at the bottom of this graph. And uh, that will give us a roughly 50-50 chance of being above 5 degrees centigrade. Now, I'll say something about what that might mean in just a moment. These are the uh, probabilities underlying this kind of graph. Um, the main source for our uh, analysis here, the modeling of climate change, comes from the Hadley Center. It's a very fine, indeed, it's, I think it's uh, one of the jewels in the crown of the UK. It's a very fine uh, climate change science uh, center in, uh, in Essex. 
Um, the, you, you should note that the Ministry of Defence does some good things uh, for re historical reasons. Uh, meteorology and so on comes under the Ministry of Defence and it supports the Hadley Centre and uh, we ought to thank it for doing uh, exactly, exactly that. There are, of course, many other models. And if you go back to the previous slide, those dotted lines indicate there are many other models out there, uh, many of which have much bigger uh, spreads, much uh, broader confidence intervals than the ones um, I've shown here. Now, what are we playing for? Well, just take the 5 degrees centigrade. I mean, 4 degrees centigrade is bad enough, but let me, for the sake of the argument, just talk about 5 degrees centigrade. If we manage to stabilise at 500, that probability of exceeding 5 degrees centigrade is 3%, according to these models and the sense of probability I'll describe in just a moment. If um, we go on under business as usual, by the end of this century we'll be 750 or more and we'll have a probability of exceeding 5 degrees centigrade of uh, around 50%. So that's what we're buying. If we cut back on our emissions to the extent that we keep the uh, stock of greenhouse gases down to 500 when it would otherwise be charging on to over 750, then we're buying down the probability of being above 5 degrees centigrade from around 50% to around 3% if we stabilised at 500. Similarly, the probability of going above 4 degrees centigrade is bought down from about 82% uh, percent to uh, around 11%. So that shows how we can start thinking about this as the returns to our um, actions to inhibit emissions. Now, um, the sense of these probabilities is a rather technical one. They come from um, those of you who, like your modelling, will um, be interested that they come from... Um, uh, essentially uh, Monte Carlo estimates, you run models with lots and lots of times with different parameters and plot the different kind of results you get and that gives you a distribution. So that's the technical sense. And then you think of the fractions that come out of that, you think of them as probabilities. Well, a number of intellectual leaps along that step, which those of you who work in uh, probabilistic models will recognise and I won't develop it here. Um, but that's the way the probabilities come from, and as I've emphasised already, the Hadley models which we used were moderately cautious. You can come up with models which are perfectly plausible, which have much higher probabilities at the top end than these do. So that's the story of what you do if you reduce emissions and thereby reduce your stocks of greenhouse gases. So that essentially is the storyline. Now, how do we link that to the basic story in economics. Well, first we say the economics of risks analysed in the way I just described and the magnitude of those risks, the seriousness of those risks point to um, keeping the lid on the quantity of emissions and through that the quantity of the stocks. That the economics of risk tells you that the risks are so big if you go above that that that's a sensible way to look at it. I said... I would say something about 5 degrees centigrade. One of the problems is, is you can't say very much about 5 degrees centigrade, but you can say enough to be very seriously worried about what is involved. 5 degrees centigrade, we haven't seen as a world um, since the Eocene times of about 30 million uh, years ago. Um, most of the world, it seems, um, from the archaeological evidence, um, neither an archaeologist nor a a physical scientist, but from the archaeological evidence, it seems that most of the world was covered in swampy forests, alligators at the North Pole. 
Now, it's not the alligators at the North Pole you have to worry about. It is the uh, clear implication that populations around the world could not live in uh, anything like the way they're living now. And in particular, they couldn't, many of them could not live where they're living now. You'd see massive movement of population and great conflict as a result. All the histories in the last 150, 200 years of big movements of population are associated with big conflict. Currently, Darfur, of course, is uh, one example of that. The division of India and Pakistan, uh, another. The invasion of uh, North America by the Europeans, uh, another. There are all kinds of examples right through recent history, uh, Australia and the... uh, Wherever you look, South Africa, the big, big movements of population cause uh, serious conflict. That's the kind of stakes, uh, those are the kind of stakes that we're playing for here. You can't, in all seriousness, attach um, very convincing economic numbers to the kind of change that I've just uh, described. That doesn't stop the profession and it didn't stop us, but all the same, you've got to look uh, at this in a uh, careful way and I believe the insurance story as I told it is much the best way to look at it modelling has its virtues I'll say something about it very briefly in a minute but uh, it's not the main argument so economics of risk points to uh, quantities and um, I pointed to the kind of areas of quantity that we should uh, be looking for in terms of stocks Once you buy into the story that we shouldn't go much beyond 500 or at the most 550, much of the rest of the argument flows straight through because you can look at the flows which could give you those kind of increases in stocks and they involve 30 to 50% cuts by 2050. 50% cuts in the flows by 2050 relative to what they are now uh, takes us, uh, roughly speaking, to the kind of stock level of 500 parts per million that I described. That's the uh, target and the logic behind the target um, agreed at the Heiligendam Summit in the G8 in uh, June of last year. Now, The kind of problems I pointed to, of course, are extremely severe. But what kind of money do we have to pay to buy down in the way I've described? Of the order of 1% of GDP were the calculations we come up with. They've been confirmed, I think. It confirms too strong. They've been supported by subsequent analysis largely, and I'll mention some of that in a minute. So the question you're asking in this insurance approach is, would you pay around 1% of GDP per annum that's your insurance, to buy down the probabilities in the way I've described. So in other words, are you ready to say that the kinds of damages that would be done by those very high probabilities of very nasty temperature increases are much more worrying than paying 1% a year? That's the kind of insurance decision that we take quite frequently in life and uh, I think it's totally understandable. Uh, in terms of decision theory at that point. Of course, the details of the story uh, are uh, very important and we ought to be able to describe what the world is like at 4 and 5 degrees centigrade much better than we can to tighten that argument. But I think the argument is sufficiently convincing as it is. So in other words, you don't have to estimate the damages. You only have to come to a view from climate change. You have to come to the view that they're much bigger than 1% of GDP and that's all that you have have to do. Um, I've already said my piece about formal modelling. I'll say something about it uh, a bit more in just uh, a minute. So risk points us to quantity targets, but we have to cut back as cheaply as we possibly can. They have to be efficient. 
the measures that we use to cut back on emissions. And there are lots of uh, touted uh, um, measures out there that probably are not uh, efficient. So that's uh, the second part of the story. Economics of risk points to quantity targets. Economics of cost points to um, getting that target as efficient, reaching those targets as efficiently as possible, and the price mechanism is going to have to be a big part of that story. What kind of price are you going to need? Well, you look at the marginal abatement cost curves. I'll come to that again very quickly in a minute. And you can start, given the level of uh, cuts that you're looking for, you can start to read off what the carbon prices should be in order to sustain those level of cuts. So starting with that stock target, we're getting a long way very quickly. You're getting to the flow cuts, you're getting to the uh, price of carbon that should sustain them. Now, you should be, because this is not simply comparing total costs with total benefits, you should also be comparing marginal costs with marginal benefits to check that you're being efficient as possible. The trouble is that the marginal benefit is very hard to calculate. It's called in the literature the social cost of carbon. It uh, depends on a rather complicated story. Because you kick up the carbon this year and you ask what damage it does. Kick up by one unit and ask what damage it does. Well, you have to work out what kind of temperatures down the track that increase of one in carbon might yield. That, of course, depends greatly on your assumptions about future paths of carbon emissions. And then you have to think about what the damages might be from that incremental temperature increase and then you have to apply um, value judgments to uh, the indefinite future to work out what uh, an overall valuation of all those effects might be. It's a complicated series of, uh, in technical terms, of expectations and three or four various kinds of integral. And it depends resoundingly on the path that you think about and on the values that uh, you bring to bear to look at that path. Give me a social cost of carbon, I can give you assumptions which would generate that social cost of carbon. On the other hand, the marginal abatement cost, as I described it, is a much more secure and clear anchor. But you should check that the marginal abatement cost, the cost of cutting down a bit, is at least in the range of the kind of social cost of carbon or the benefit you get from cutting back on one unit. So you should do that check. Um, and... Uh, Finally, so I've spoken about the range of action. I've talked about cutting by around 50% by 2050. I've talked about how you keep the costs down and the kind of prices of carbon that might do that. Finally, a key to this whole story is equity. And uh, we're not going to get... A, a, we shouldn't act in a way which is inequitable. And B, um, you're never going to get a global deal if what is on the table is uh, breathtakingly inequitable. It's going to be a bit inequitable. Uh, I'll go into that as well because of the history. It's the rich countries that have filled up uh, the bigger part of the atmosphere and it's the poor countries that are going to, hit, going to be hit earliest and hardest. This is a thoroughly inequitable story. But unless we do something to try to, um, as it were, buy down that inequity, we're simply not going to get the global deal. So it's the right thing to do, but it's also the pragmatic thing to do. And I'll talk about what an equitable deal means right at the end of what uh, I have to say. So actually we push this argument a very long way, starting with a story of risk and, starting and showing what kind of areas for stocks, target stocks, arise from it. Now, 
I've, uh, these are the flows. I've um, already, in my verbal argument, moved from stocks to flows. This illustrates it. The blue line is business as usual. The yellow line is uh, a path, one example of a path that stabilizes at 550. The red is one example of a path that stabilizes at um, 500. Lots of uncertainty about these. You can always uh, cut back a bit more now and a bit less later, or a bit less now and a bit more later. So uh, this should really be, as it were, a corridor of paths. But the paths that meet the kind of stabilization targets I pointed to have those kinds of shapes. Notice that uh, we have to peak within uh, 15 years or so, peak the uh, emissions, and uh, the red path does correspond, roughly speaking, to a 50% absolute cut uh, by 2050, taking down the flow of emissions per annum from around 42 or so gigatons of CO2 per annum down to a little over 20. So that's the kind of uh, path we have to follow, and you've seen that uh, um, delay there um, will uh, make life very difficult to achieve any given stabilization target. The flow stock process is brutal here. This is a flow adding to the stock, and it's very difficult to get the stock out. So the later you leave it, the more the flow is built up, the bigger the stock you've got to, the more difficult it is to achieve any stabilization level. So it's the brutal logic of the flow stock process that points, uh, given the high starting point that we have, very strongly to early action. So um, I've spoken about the cost estimates. I'd, I can't go into those in any detail, but I've said that if anything we underestimated uh, the damages, I think probably the costs were roughly in the right range. For what it's worth, um, subsequent analyses have on the whole come down with costs in the region, come out with costs in the region of the costs that we came up with, 1% of GDP for getting below 550. And both look at, looked at from bottom up, looking at the detailed technologies that could do it, and from the top down aggregate uh, modelling. There's one of these that I'll point to in just a minute. But notice that this is um, uh, a story of growth. 1%, a one-off 1% increase in your cost index is the kind of thing we deal with as nations quite often. I mean, just think of the very big movements in exchange rates or oil prices that you see. This does not stop growth. This is a story of low-carbon growth. There is no horse race between climate responsibility and growth. And uh, I would um, absolutely not go away, along with a story that says this is all about um, a Buddhist style of life, vegetarianism and cycling. Um, I actually admire all those three things. Um, I don't practice them as well as I should. But it doesn't, a strong action on this does not require that route. And if it turns into a horse race between climate responsibility and short-run growth, climate responsibility will lose. And that's why it's terribly important to establish and establish clearly that this is a growth story. And actually not doing anything on climate change is the anti-growth story because eventually you'll run into deep trouble and it will disrupt the growth process. So I think that uh, comes out directly from the observation that this will cost about 1% of GDP. That does not stop growth. It just is a one-off 1% increase in costs because you do, largely because you do your energy in a bit of a different way. It is not an industrial revolution to be compared with the internet, with uh, electricity, with the railways, all of which radically changed our lives. You get in a car, it will go, but it will uh, be powered by zero carbon electricity. You turn your lights on, they'll come on. 
You turn your heating on, it will work, but it will be powered in a zero-carbon way. Radical changes in important technologies, but not necessarily radical changes in ways of life. Energy efficiency, of course, a big part of that story. There are other things that come with it, reduced pollution, energy security, if you do it right, uh, and opportunities. There could be a Schumpeterian story here of new and exciting horizons as we get into these new technologies. Very difficult to quantify, but nonetheless, I think, uh, quite real. Now, here's, the, here's a few moments of modelling. Those of you who don't like modelling can just sort of switch off for about five minutes, but I'll tell you when to switch back on again. Um, what we've got is uh, here are the results from an integrated uh, assessment model. Um, these calculations were done in large measure by uh, Simon Dietz who, of LSE, who's here tonight working on a model uh, uh, by Chris Hope. Um, prepare of, of Cambridge University. So it's a stochastic model, uh, goes off into the uh, indefinite future, and it looks at the way in which different build-up of emissions lead to different temperature increases and the damages associated with those different temperature increases. Now, what we did is it's quite hard to get people to understand the uh, number associated with the expectation of a uh, utility integral of utility over the indefinite future. Um, it's quite a straightforward idea, but the number that comes out the other end is not something that people uh, intuit all that readily. So what we did is we just expressed that in terms of um, a reduction in consumption. Um, what you do is for each pass that you describe, you say, well, yeah, it's all complicated, lots of uncertainty, growth rate goes up and down, but it's just the same utility as you would get, same expected utility as you would get, with a path that started at this consumption and grew at a constant rate. So that's a way of describing the expectation of the utility integral. Well, then you say, well, take another path with lots of climate change, say, and look at that utility integral and express that as a level of consumption growing at a constant rate. And look at the difference between the two, and that's what you're losing. So um, if you take the top left-hand corner, you get a number which is uh, uh, essentially close to the number we had in the uh, Stern Review, that it's equivalent, uh, unrestricted climate change is equivalent to a loss of utility of about 10% of, uh, of consumption or GDP. Looking over the indefinite future, consumption and GDP are essentially uh, equivalent in terms of percentage losses. So that would say that not doing anything about climate change or climate change hitting you unrestrained would be like losing 10% every year. Um, essentially, that's an average over possible outcomes, over periods of time, and over parts of the world. So it's quite a big sort of averaging process going on. But it gives you a feel for what the losses are. Now, that number at top left-hand corner is roughly speaking Stern Review. It's arguable that we should have been more risk-averse and or egalitarian in the kind of utility function we used. That uh, would mean shifting over to the right. And it's very clear to me that uh, the damages that uh, we assumed from climate change were too low. The way in which those rose with temperature were too low, the kind of probability distributions we used were too narrow. And down the left-hand side, moving down these rows, uh, we summarise that in terms of the damage function exponent. Again, it's conceivable that uh, not all of you are economists or mathematicians, but that, uh, that's your choice and your fault. But the, 
the damage function uh, exponent here uh, tells you the amount of damages associated with a given temperature increase and the exponent is the power on that temperature increase. So exponent of uh, 2 says that damages go up like T squared. I think O-level mass is enough for, uh, for that. Well, GCSE, I guess, now. So um, I'm arguing that we were up the top left-hand corner in the Stern Review. There is a case for shifting over to the right. That's a value judgment. People can make up their mind what they want to do about that. Uh, looking down is much more empirical, and I think that uh, empirically we underestimated. So what I'm arguing here is that we should uh, shift down the rows. That's the damage function exponent possibly shift along uh, the columns and uh, you can see that if you did move down, to the, down the diagonal it wouldn't change your estimate very much and if you'd moved a long way down the diagonal then that, those damages start to go up quite strongly. Actually moving a long way down the diagonal, what's doing the damage is the high risk and the risk aversion uh, story um, in all this. So that's enough of the modelling. Uh, you wake up now if you uh, had switched off. Oh well you might not, you might want to stay asleep. <laughs> Let me say something very quickly about discounting because the discussion of discounting in the uh, literature has been absolutely awful and uh, has not really recognized either the structure of the problem or what modern public economics uh, tells us. So let me go very fast through that and this is for the uh, people who like that sort of thing. Um, this is a non-marginal problem. In other words, we're comparing paths that look very different. One path down here, another path up there, they move around, there's lots of uncertainty. Discounting is a mar the, uh, an analysis using a discount rate is a marginal analysis. It looks at little shifts around parts. And if you think you can bring a discount rate from outside and apply it to this problem, you haven't understood what non-marginality means or the theoretical foundation of what discounting means. Anyway, you should have fallen at the first fence if that's what you want to do, is just to bring a discount rate from outside. Suppose you didn't notice that you'd fallen at the first fence and you went on with the story um, and you started saying, what market will tell me what I want to know about intertemporal values? Well, there isn't one. There is no market that, will, that allows you to read off intertemporal values for a community taking a collective decision and looking out 100 and 150 years ahead. There are a few private discount rates that you could infer over 30, 40, 50 years, say, from people's behavior relative to uh, index-linked government bonds. There, if you, if you go that route, you get um, private discount rates of 1, 1.5%. If you go the route of equities, you get discount rates or rates of return, which is private rates of return on investment, of around 5 or 7% over very long periods in the UK and the US. So private discount rate um, one, one and a half, private rate of return on investment, five or seven. Now, lots of discussion in literature about why these things are different, involving risk, imperfect capital markets, all, uh, all these things. But if you go that route, there's quite a powerful case for taking discount rates around one and a half percent in this uh, area because those are the revealed uh, long-run rates of return for private individuals. But it's a weak foundation for the reasons I've described is you're looking out much further and you're talking about collective decisions, not private uh, decisions. Um, but suppose you didn't notice you'd fallen at that fence either. 
and went on to the, uh, ploughed on with that story and said, well, you know, I see all this stuff about climate change, but why don't I invest at 5, 6, uh, 7% and then I'll get lots of lovely returns on that and then I'll buy down all the problems of climate change later on. Next mistake. That's ignoring that this is a multi-good problem. In other words, if you try to do it that way and try to buy down and do your mitigation and your adaptation later on, or particularly your mitigation later on, what would you find? You'd find that the price of the thing you're trying to buy later on, which you've postponed to invest elsewhere, has gone through the roof. It's shot up because of this flow stock problem and how much more difficult it gets to achieve any given stabilization target if you postpone action. So... The story of, of discounting in the literature in economics since the publication of the Stern Review I think has been uh, pretty depressing, although happily I think it's starting, people are starting to rediscover what they knew or should have known in the 60s and 70s about the, the relevance of the marginal technique and the role of uh, public economics here. Now, I'm slipping behind time. When do I have to stop uh, here? Half seven. Okay. So, uh, and there are at least three correspondents of the Financial Times who failed to work out the difference between pure time discounting and discounting, but that's another story. So, looking back on the, uh, looking back on the uh, Stern Review analysis after one year, I think the risk avoidance story as a way of looking at it, the insurance way of looking at this story, is still the right one, the, the one that we emphasised. The modelling story does have value. It does allow you to look at uh, trade-offs, but um, much of the past literature had left risk out and had a very crude discussion of ethics, and as a result came up with uh, damages from climate change, which were much too low. I've argued for various reasons that we did underestimate uh, the damages um, and that the cost of action that we came up with has received quite a lot of support since uh, we published. So the big storyline of the first part of the Stern, Stern Review, which is that the cost of action is much less than the cost of inaction, I think has stood up very well to the subsequent evidence and uh, analysis. So this is a story, a series of lectures about energy. Let me relate all this a bit uh, to energy and uh, technologies, and then uh, I'll go on to finish uh, with the global deal. Maybe eight minutes on uh, each of those two bits. First, um, energy is about, worldwide, is about two-thirds of emissions. There's a tremendous amount of emissions which is not energy. Land use change is largely deforestation. Agriculture, well, agriculture turning the earth over, using fertilizers and so on, that, uses, that releases emissions. And it's quite going to be quite hard to bring down uh, those emissions from agriculture. But you can stop the emissions from deforestation by stopping deforestation. Where are energy emissions uh, headed? Well, Ross Garno is doing a uh, review for the uh, new Australian government. It's absolutely wonderful that we have a new Australian uh, <laughs> government and it, and it shows, illustrates what happens to politicians if they ignore the issue of climate change. Um, and we wish John Howard a very uh, happy future life. Um, <laughs> at least some people do. Now, but what is Ross Garner coming up with? And he's doing the kind of calculations on emissions in a much more detailed way than we were able to do at the time of the Stern Review. He's really honed in on this one. And he has argued already in his interim review, published about a week ago, um, which, uh, in, indeed, he says that of all the IPCC uh, extrapolations of energy, 
Uh, we used, by the way, the second highest in the Stern Review. He's, he now argues that emissions will greatly exceed the highest of those scenarios, a result I referred to um, without attribution a bit earlier on. Um, if you look at the International Energy Agency, a splendid source of analysis uh, in uh, this area, they and their basic scenario, in other words, a scenario without strong action, talk about uh, energy emissions um, uh, more than increasing by more than half in the period of 2005 to uh, 2030. Remember, we were talking about overall emissions being cut by 50%. Uh, between 1990 and uh, 2050. So very strong movement in the wrong direction. Part of this associated with the intense use of coal, uh, part of that associated with India and China uh, using coal and electricity generation, but also because the change in relative prices, the dash for gas being replaced uh, by, to some extent by a return to coal, which is the most polluting of the fuels. China and India, and it's very good that China and India are growing strongly, um, are a big part of this increase. Indeed, more than half of the increase of the energy emissions which the IEA anticipates. They argue that China's emissions um, um, will, that uh, China's emissions and India's too, will more than double by 2030. I don't want to put China and India together. People do that far too often uh, for virtually any subject. Um, but here, China's emissions are, are two or three times India. So please separate out China and India as far as possible in the sentences you use because they're in different circumstances here. But both of them will uh, at least double by 2030. My own view is that uh, the IEA estimates of China doubling by 2030 are way too low. Uh, China doesn't do doubling in 25 years. China does doubling in 10 years. That's what 7% uh, growth rates do. So if China doubles by... Uh, uh, 2030, something pretty remarkable is happening in this reference scenario for, for China. And I think under cross-questioning, the IEA would, would recognize that probably they're too conservative under the reference scenario of no strong policy. Now, as we point at the increases, particularly in China, accounting uh, increase in China and India, particularly China, accounting for more than half the increase uh, worldwide, I think we have to uh, remember that it's quite wrong to point a finger here. First, they're fighting poverty in order to, and uh, growth is a big part of that story. Secondly, they've only just started doing it, and the rich countries uh, were emitting for a very long time. And thirdly, uh, where the production takes place, of course, is one question, but also whose is the consumption that that production is supplying. So you have to be quite careful in looking at these things and uh, wagging fingers. But what is clear that unless China particularly and India are in on this global deal, then we're not going to achieve the kind of targets that uh, we've described as necessary. And therefore the question becomes, how do you work with India and China to get them involved in a deal? Or how do they help shape the deal? How do they lead on this story? It's not just us uh, demanding they come in, it's how they themselves would want to uh, take the leadership. Now, some people say, well, you know, you shouldn't worry about all this because all these hydrocarbons are running out anyway. That's actually sort of true. But the point is that there's more than enough uh, hydrocarbons, particularly of coal, to fry the, to fry the planet. So um, essentially, if we used up these hydrocarbons, I don't, we can't actually. There's no way that we can use up these hydrocarbons unless we do hydro, 
unless we do carbon capture and storage on a massive scale, there's no way we can use up these hydrocarbons and think at the same time we can control um, uh, global warming and climate change. But what I want to point, the two points I want to make here, one is there's plenty out there to actually give, take us into very dangerous levels of stocks of uh, greenhouse gases. But secondly, we're going to have to find alternatives to these things anyway because uh, they are uh, fairly finite and um, we might as well do that from the point of view of climate change sooner rather than later. So it's essentially getting on Finding alternatives to hydrocarbons is getting on with something that we're going to have to do this century in any case. So let's get the technical progress and the investments done now. Now, I'll be very quick on prices and policy because I haven't left myself much time. This is a curve, a marginal abatement cost curve. This tells you as you move along the curve how much it costs you to cut back on each increment of carbon. Now, all you have to do, you'd have to read all this, and then some of you, of course, the younger generation can read it from where you're sitting. But the point here is that uh, there's a whole chunk of things which have negative cost, mostly associated with energy inefficiency in some shape or form, and then a number of things out there that have positive cost. And uh, the cost-minimizing way of doing these things is, uh, not surprisingly, to do the cheapest things first and then move on as you get more ambitious in the horizontal axis is cutting uh, how much you cut back in terms of uh, gigatons. Vertical axis is the, is the, marginal, the marginal cost. So um, essentially, um, first point to make is policy matters a great deal. If you move out way to the right-hand side here, you can, uh, by forcing people through misplaced regulation, you can make the cost much bigger than they might otherwise be. So the use of the price mechanism to guide the choice of the uh, lowest cost way of doing things is extremely important. Um, I'll argue in just a moment that the price mechanism alone isn't going to do the trick, but uh, it's going to be a crucial part of the efficiency story. And as I said earlier on, you can read off from these curves. Suppose you want to go roughly half or two-thirds to the right of this curve. This corresponds to 2030, as you would want to do. Um, along the kind of uh, emissions reduction story that I told, then you'd have to start picking up carbon capture and storage for coal. To do that, you need a carbon price of at least $30 uh, a barrel. Uh, sorry, $30 per tonne of CO2. And uh, $30 per tonne of CO2 is actually in the kind of range that we're starting to see the uh, prices in the European Union Emissions Trading Scheme. Around now, in the second phase, uh, 208 to 212, something around 20 euros uh, a tonne. Now, I'm not going to bother about the exchange rate over the next 30 or 50 years between the dollar and the euro. When I say dollar, I mean euro. When I say euro, I mean dollar. Um, one for one is as good as you can get uh, over a 30 or 50 year time horizon. Anybody who knows it much better than that is about to be very rich. What kind of uh, price mechanisms can you use? Well, I've already referred to the EU emissions trading scheme, which covers half of emissions in the EU already, by focusing on some of the big industries. That's a big deal. Um, ask people, uh, if you go out and you go and stop somebody on the 68 bus in the uh, Aldwych and say, you know, is there a price of carbon uh, in the UK and how much is it? They'd probably say no and uh, second question irrelevant because there isn't, but actually it covers half of our emissions and it started after a very sort of sticky start, starts for the EU emissions trading scheme in the first phase, it started to edge not quite up to the levels that we should be looking for, but at least getting uh, into a sensible range. And that's a 
trading quota system where people trade in the right to emissions. Now, all kinds of detail that matters there about how you organize these things. Don't give them away, auction them. But uh, what we should be looking for is a consistent price of carbon across the board. So where you have a tax, that's fine. That can be on some part of the economy, and uh, it can be trading somewhere else on another part of the economy. But try to avoid overlap because you'll confuse the signals. Regulation is an implicit price because you force people into more expensive technologies. That reduces carbon, and the ratio between the two is an implicit price of carbon. Be careful how you do that, but there are real advantages in some places to doing that to accelerate the technology. Um, because if you give people confidence about where the technology is going, they can invest and invent on, invest on scale. You reduce uncertainty, reduce task costs. This curve illustrates how costs come down over time. This is electricity production here uh, with experience. This says they're learning curves here. And that's a real reason, because they're learning curves, for encouraging learning of technologies which are likely to fall in price. So the feed-in tariffs of the kind they have in Germany, for example, make sense from this kind of perspective for renewables because there's a learning process. And it won't be the same for the different technologies. And having some thought about how it might move to different technologies is important for uh, policy. What's been happening to public sector investment in uh, energy research and development? Well, it's been going the wrong way, uh, dramatically the wrong way. It's halved over about 25 years. A number of reasons for that, including low prices uh, of oil and gas and um, uh, the privatization of the big um, nationalized industry research departments and so on. But uh, it must obviously turn the other way. High correlation between private expenditure on R&D and uh, public expenditure on R&D. Par partnership there is crucial. What kind of technologies... Well, this is uh, the uh, pink uh, or mauve or whatever description you offer to that colour. Um, gives you uh, a carbon element of the price. So PF is pulverised fuel coal without carbon capture and storage. Um, so uh, at a price of 40 euro a tonne, which is the example I've given here, the overall cost of pulverised fuel coal without carbon capture and storage will be the sum of the blue and the mauve bits. So you can see that uh, the mauve bit is important in correcting the externality in this market, in making people pay. Because if it were like that, then uh, the uh, carbon capture and storage for coal would start to become at least competitive with um, coal without carbon capture and storage because without carbon capture and storage you have to pay for the uh, emissions and that would bump up your costs. So there's quite a lot of choice here. Onshore emissions with a decent, uh, with a decent uh, carbon price starts to look competitive as well. Now gas is currently uh, a higher cost on its blue bit than coal in large measure because the price of gas has moved up uh, so much. Had you drawn these curves in the uh, late 80s or early 90s, then it would have looked very different, and that was associated with the, the dash for gas. But what I want to emphasize here is that there's a lot of scope for choice. Notice nuclear out on the far right already starts to look quite competitive. Lots of um, worries about how you do the price and who pays for the storage and how much they pay and what discount rates you use, but nuclear is at least one option that appears to be competitive at serious um, uh, carbon prices. And those offering to do it in the private sector, of course, are revealing their judgment that they believe it to be competitive. I have no particular axe to grind about any of these technologies. Different countries will do different things. 
I'd be astonished if the Germans expanded their nuclear and uh, astonished if the French contracted their nuclear. It's going to be different choices in different places. Germany going very strongly for onshore wind. Some parts of Germany already half the electricity is onshore uh, onshore wind. There will be very different choices in different places and that's absolutely fine as far as I'm concerned. What matters is getting the emissions down. Right, uh, five minutes on uh, the global deal. I'll go very fast. No, we want you to do this, Nick. Okay. So what um, is the global deal going to look like? Well, I've already said the world has, uh, at the Heiligen Dam Summit, G8 and G5, the big developing countries there also, declared for 50% reductions by 2050. What kind of declaration you read a G8 declaration as being and who's committed to what and who noticed and who was still awake is another kind of story. But the communique did say 50% reductions by 2050. They didn't give the base year, but let's give them credit and think they meant 1990. They fudged that. But it's still, at least, people are talking about reductions in the right area. What about um, country by country? Well, count California as a country for a moment. They've got 80% reductions um, by 2050, and uh, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was re-elected with a strong majority on that kind of campaign. Obama and Clinton have declared for 80% reductions by 2050. The order there, Obama-Clinton, doesn't show any preference of mine. (laughs) Think of it as alphabetical order by first name. Uh, (laughs) But you do know what I think about the war in Iraq. The um, France... um, nearly four years ago now, declared for the factor cat, caused 75% reductions by 2050. Spring Council in the summer of, this, uh, summer of 2007 uh, declared for 20% or 30% reductions, a higher level as part of a global deal by 2020. Well on 30% would be well on the way to uh, 80% reductions by 2050. Gordon Brown said that the current 60% level for the UK would be reviewed after the uh, climate change bill after Climate Change Committee uh, made its recommendations and um, um, I have some confidence that it will recommend for uh, 80% reductions and uh, they'll be in trouble if they, uh, if they don't. But I, you know, I think that that's the way UK policy genuinely is, uh, is going. So you've got a lot of rich countries starting to declare for uh, order of magnitude 80% reductions. Now what does that mean? Well... Let's think of where we've said we're going to go. 50% reductions by 2050. So that means that uh, currently 42 gigaton CO2 equivalent, where we are now with a population of 6 billion. Giga is billion, 42 divided by 6 is around 7. So we're around 7 tonnes per capita. We're aiming for around 22 or so, thereabouts, uh, and the population in 2050 will be 9 billion. So that's two, two and a half tons per capita. So the world at seven tons per capita has got to get to a world at two and two and a half tons per capita. If some bit of the world says, couldn't possibly do that, we're going to end up a bit above, then please tell me who's going to end up below so that the average can work out at two, two and a half tons per capita. Where is Europe now? Europe's 10 or 12 tons per capita. 80% reductions means divide by five. 10 or 12 divided by five takes you to two, two and a half. So 80% reductions from the uh, EU would bring the EU down to the average that they have supported as a world target by 2050. Uh, US, reduc- US reductions, because US is over 20, would have to be about 90%. 
But let's suppose that uh, a candidate wins that uh, is committed to 80%. John McCain, by the way, is committed to at least 65% and has proposed practical bills on cap and trade in the US uh, Congress. So uh, of the viable candidates, all three of them are committed to quite strong policies in, uh, in this area. Um, so if the US commits to 80%, we'll sort out and bump them up to 90% a little later on. So if they start at 80%, that's okay as far as I'm concerned, and we can continue the discussion later. Um, but look at China and India. China's already above five. The growth of the Chinese economy will take China up by a factor of around 10 by 2050. Actually, if China goes on doubling every 10 years, then the Chinese economy will be a factor of 16 or more by 2050. And China's already twice as high as where we have to end up as a world on average. So this is a story where um, China and India absolutely clearly have to be part of it. And uh, I'll say in just a moment how I think that can, uh, that can happen. But let's not congratulate ourselves too heavily about declaring for 80% reductions by 2050. What will it do? It will be bring us down by 2050 to the world average if the world acts sensibly. The world average flow. So think of this as a party that's been going on for 200 years, from 1850 to 2050. And those of you who uh, started drinking earlier in that period, like the UK, in other words, filling the atmosphere up with the greenhouse gases. So those of us uh, who started drinking early in that game propose an uh, equality rule that says... Right at the end of the party, we'll all drink out of glasses of the same size, notwithstanding all the drinking that had been going on beforehand. That's a very weak notion of equity. We should be focusing strongly on stocks. In other words, how much of that atmosphere have different people had? We have to have an equity discussion that's in part on that basis. Yeah? Now... My own view is that 80% reductions by 2050 is probably the best we can get from the rich countries, and I'd settle for that. So I'm not saying we shouldn't do 80%. I'm saying there's actually a case for doing much more than 80%. More than 100%, of course, means paying uh, strongly for other people uh, to cut back. Not going negative. It means paying strongly for other people in this, uh, in this context. So I do think that 80% is the minimum that the developing world should accept. And... Uh, my advice to India and China has been and will continue to be that they shouldn't be part of a global deal where the rich countries commit to cutting by anything less than uh, 80%. And in demanding that, they will not, being, they will not be being unreasonable in any sense at all. So um, that's the story of uh, the reservoir. And uh, you can be drinking from the reservoir or you could be filling up a tank with a maximum size, however you express the metaphor. So here's the global deal. 50% cuts in world emissions by 2050, rich countries at least 80%. What are the poor countries going to look for? They're going to look for two things to come in beyond the big responsibility of the rich countries. They can look for two things, technology and flows of finance. And we have to, I'll come to technology in just a moment, but the flows of finance come through carbon trading. So you have private sector flows of finance through carbon trading. And um, what we should be looking for is a, a descendant of the clean development mechanism, I haven't got time to go into that, but that allows this kind of trading on scale. So in other words, you'd look for strong benchmarks, 
people who get below those benchmarks will be able to sell the amount they've gone below those benchmarks. A, a system like that is in place. It's much too small and it's uh, institutionally structured that it couldn't carry a big uh, expansion. But you can describe a change that would carry that big expansion. So those are the flows of finance from carbon trading. Um, what are the funding issues? Those come from what I've, what I've spoken about just now is publicly set targets and privately set, uh, privately determined uh, prices and trade. But the direct funding issues, deforestation fundamental, um, no time to go into that, but I reckon for 10 or 15 billion dollars per annum, public funds initially, but preparing for trade, um, uh, could actually halve deforestation. Um, demonstrating and sharing technologies. Carbon capture and storage is going to be crucial for coal if India and China can have any chance of uh, reducing uh, their emissions strongly. And we're going to have to show that works. There's good reason to believe it will work, but it has to be demonstrated on commercial scale. And my Indian friends say to me, look, Nick, you've got my phone number. Just as soon as that carbon capture and storage uh, plant for coal is working on a uh, commercial scale in the UK, just give me a call. We'll come over. We'll have a look. And uh, if it uh, looks promising, then we start talking seriously about the transfer of the technology. We've got to prove these things work, and we've got to prove they work quickly, because the expansion in India and China, not only India and China, Poland, United States, and other places, is going to be uh, fueled in large measure by coal, at least at current prices. Um, so that's the technology part of the story. Prove and uh, share. And finally, I haven't said much uh, about... Uh, adaptation, but the cost to developing countries of climate change is already big and it's rising. Uh, the UNDP uh, Human Development Report published in November last year estimated costs of the developing world of upwards of 80 billion per annum by 2015 and that uh, is in my view probably on the low side. The inequity of this comes not only on the mitigation side, which I've emphasised, but also on adaptation and uh, the pressures to us to honour the commitments we made as a world in Monterey at the UN Summit of 2002 and Glen Eagles in 2005 are absolutely fundamental to a global deal being seen as equitable. So how's all this going to work? Well, what is really remarkable about this is the extent to which rich country policy is being driven by what voters demand or what politicians perceive voters as demanding. We've already seen John Howard get thrown out of office partly on this issue. We've already seen Arnold Schwarzenegger get elected to, re-elected to office with a bigger majority partly on this issue. Um, the great uh, um, communicator and ecologist and TV star Nicolas Hulot uh, in France, invited in February last year, the three, well, he invited all of them, but the, in particular the three main candidates in the presidential election. He said, you turn up here, I name the place, on this date, I name the date, and you sign my ecology pact. And if you don't, I'm running for president. They all turned up, they all signed, and they then competed with each other over the sincerity of their signature. It is quite remarkable how strongly this can play uh, politically. Now, I'm not saying that this will continue indefinitely, but it's much easier than trade. You go and ask people to campaign in favour of free trade, which makes a lot of sense, at least to those of you who studied a bit of economics. Not totally free trade, but uh, more or less uh, free trade. Where's the public movement for that? Where's the public demanding that we sign a, do sign a deal in, uh, uh, on the Doha round? That just doesn't it's not there. It's not something that fires people up. But quite remarkably, this one does. 
And it's very encouraging that it does do that. So what's the enforcement mechanism? It's not some huge international institution that's going to go around bashing people over the head with some uh, international club because they've deviated from something or other. It's going to be the pressure of the people who say, we should have promised this, we did promise this, and you're not honouring this promise, and we demand that you do. The Climate Change uh, Committee will be an institutional device in the UK to hold the government's feet to the fire on that, and I think very valuable. So this can work. It can work at reasonable cost, and it can be supported politically. Will it work? I'm more optimistic than I was uh, a year ago. Am I optimistic? I don't know. But the uh, cheap cynicism says that, yeah, boo, all cost too much, nobody will ever agree, should be followed by uh, another sentence. What I'm saying by my cheap cynicism is that the world is going to go to 650, 750, 850 parts per million, we're going to run serious risks of these very high temperature increases. And uh, this is what um, I have to explain is the consequence of giving up on this and being cynical about whether we can do anything. The trouble is that they never finish the, uh, the paragraph, but I'd better finish mine. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. I mean, that was obviously a tour de force. I have rarely seen this theatre so quiet, so focused, and I think during the course of the lecture of one hour, ten minutes, nobody left. And if you sit here as I do, you know that's very, very rare indeed. So it, it's a measure of the quality of the lecture you gave, but also, of course, the urgency and the importance of the issues you raise and the analysis you offer. And uh, we have time to take questions. Um, I like taking them in clusters of five so the audience has a chance to set its own agenda, as it were. Um, let's just see roughly where the hands are. Let's take this gentleman on the right, and then we'll come over here, and then we'll come up. There will be, be time for some of you. Uh, Lord Stone, thank you very much for a very interesting talk. I do suspect that to some extent you were preaching to the converted here, but um, in a university, different views should be considered. And so would you care to comment on statements by a highly distinguished panel, including Richard Linson, widely regarded as the world's leading climate scientist, that your review's treatment of sources and evidence is selective and biased and is flawed to a degree that makes it unsuitable for use in setting policy? Thank you. Pretty clear question. Um, so, Nicholas, when you spoke tonight about... How people could just say who they are and then... Uh, hello, my name is Peter Lockley. Um, when you spoke tonight about how we should think about pricing carbon, you appeared to give primacy to an abatement cost. You described that as the anchor um, with a, social, a marginal social cost as a, as a cross-check. Now, um, in reading part three of the review, uh, and treat me gently because I'm a layman, um, it seems that you advocated um, setting the, the cost of carbon according to a social cost. Um, and I wondered if you could just clarify that for me. Certainly the UK government has gone with a line of um, uh, sticking to a social cost, which has allowed it, in, in the view of many environmental organisations, um, to use a low cost of carbon um, because it's um, aiming for a low stabilisation target. Okay, questions are several on this side. Yes, the lady just behind you. 
Thank you. My name is Ivaya Levanova. I'm a student at Richmond keep, University. Keep your mic close. Um, yeah, sorry. I wanted to ask, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, a report called Al Gore's Science Fiction. Um, it was distributed within the EU. So I was interested, uh, what's your view, because I was very convinced by the global deal and by your views in general, what's your view, you know, in policymaking when there are such people, you know, that how, how is it going to work when there are people in the policymaking arena that think like this, say that climate change doesn't exist? Okay, thank you. We'll just take two at the top now. Yes, lady, the lady there with the mic. Yes, you, you just hang on to it. Hi, I'm Mansi. I work for local government. I just wanted to know, I share the views with policymakers. They think that 50% target for 2050 is, is not realistic and unachievable. And now you're saying 80%. Do you think it's achievable and realistic? Okay, the person next to you, and then we'll give Nick a chance to start his response. Yeah, hi, my name is Ramsey. Uh, I'm studying development here at LSE. I just had a question. When, when figuring out the cost of non-action, um, you've been criticized because you put a price on human life, and you've put a different price for poor people than rich people. Um, how, would you, how would you respond to that? There was, there was a piece in The Guardian just two days ago uh, criticizing, and what, what are the moral implications for that, and how would you back that up? Nick, that's five big questions. <laughs> and we've got about another 30 waiting, yeah. so... Um, the, the first one is on the science. Um, I'm not a uh, scientist. Um, I happen to have done a mathematics degree 40 years ago. That doesn't make me the scientist. So what can you do in those circumstances? You listen carefully to the scientists. Uh, we actually, in the course of doing the review, uh, went and spoke to Richard Linson at uh, MIT. That doesn't mean that uh, he convinced us, and he didn't. And if you look at uh, what we can do in those circumstances, not ourselves, uh, set ourselves up as uh, judges of the science, but talk to the serious scientists about that. Now, Richard Linson is a serious scientist, but he's in an absolutely tiny minority of uh, scientists that take the view that he espouses. The big majority, and it's huge, uh, well over 99% of scientists around the world who look at this uh, seriously, have argued very clearly uh, that climate change is important and it's on the kind of scale that these probabilities imply. That's what the IPCC did, but if you talk to scientists outside the IPCC, you'll get the same uh, result. I think it's cheerful that a world in which uh, um, idiosyncrasies of Richard Linson's kind exist is the one we live in, and I welcome his presence in it. Um, but in terms, in terms of a serious contribution to the discussion, I think that uh, the weight is very clearly as uh, I describe it, not as I describe it, as the vast majority of scientists uh, do describe it. And it's remarkable how many economists think they've become scientists and how many lawyers think they've become scientists and say, oh, well, you know, we've heard scares before and this doesn't uh, exist. This is 19th century science. Uh, the greenhouse effect um, was discovered and developed and in, to a large extent uh, on some dimensions, some important dimensions, measured in the 19th century, um, uh, including um, by the famous French mathematician Fourier starting in the 1820s and going on uh, to the, uh, right through uh, the century. Um, but it's in recent times that scientists have been in a position with the, a very large computer models 
uh, over these last five or ten years to come up with the probability kind of distributions that uh, we've described. Um, and if you're thinking about this as a risk, suppose that the vast majority of um, scientists have been misled by some gargantuan hoax which they're all part of and they all participate in. Quite extraordinary feat of organisation if that's true. But suppose they're misled you know, for some other reason. Um, what happens if you do uh, try to act strongly on climate change? You invest in these kinds of technologies. Uh, you invest around uh, 1% or so GDP. And uh, you find out a lot about technology in the process. You have a cleaner world. You have a more energy efficient world. Not much of a downside. Suppose, on the other hand, that you bet that all these scientists are completely deluded. And you say, yeah, I'm not going to do anything. You know, I've seen uh, nutty scientists before. This time they're all nutty. And um, so you bet that way. Well, what happens if these guys turn out to be right? You're in a position 30 or 40 years down the track where uh, it's extremely difficult to extricate yourself. So any basic simple decision theory on risk, I think, would be uh, to bet that the vast majority of scientists are in fact, uh, are in fact right. What do you do in a world where uh, people still, a few, a happily a diminishing few, still cling on to the idea that this is all unreal? Uh, I think you just have to steadily and quietly go on presenting the evidence as best you can. I don't know any other way of doing it. We're at a university. We try and be rational and we try and put the evidence. And I think that that kind of argument is working over time. Now, what about the, um, um, uh, the marginal uh, abatement cost anchor and the social cost of carbon? I'm actually being very pragmatic about what you can calculate with what kind of uh, confidence and also being theoretical about the risk uh, approach to this story. I explained why I think the risk approach to this story is right, why it points you to uh, quantity reductions, and then you look at a price which will support those quantity reductions. There's a clear logical structure to that. And you check on, uh, as best you can, because it's so difficult, on the social cost of carbon afterwards. And what you then have is a coherent policy. It gives you a target over quantities and how they come down over time and a price which could support those kinds of reductions. And that I think is the easiest and clearest way of looking at it. If you do go the social cost of carbon route, you get into all kinds of difficulties about um, what kind of paths you're thinking about. Because if you look at the social cost of carbon on a path which goes charging on upwards and has very high emissions, you can get a much higher social cost of carbon than you do on the, low, on the lower path. So which assumption do you make? What I'm arguing is that if you have clear policies on targets, then you can find a consistent assumption consistent with those targets. You better keep reminding people that that's what you're doing, that it is consistent with those targets. And the social cost of carbon would be much higher in a world which, uh, which didn't come to them. So that's the way I looked at it uh, in the way that uh, I did and the way the team did and uh, some of the team are here uh, tonight. Um, so it's true that if you have a more reckless path, you will have a higher social cost of carbon. Uh, that, that's logically correct. How much? Very difficult to work out, but probably a lot higher. But what do you do with that statement? I think it's much better to look for consistent policies on quantities and ask what prices uh, support that. Um, on the, uh, the, you know, the idea that uh, we assume... Um, somehow that life is cheaper in developing countries than in rich countries is simply wrong and uh, clearly no part 
of the story of risk analysis as I did it, um, as I told it uh, tonight. Um, 50% unattainable. Well, I just spent some time explaining uh, through the story of technologies how it could indeed be attained. Will it involve strong policies? Will it involve coherent action? It certainly will. But we know the technologies, uh, we know that there are many sort of technologies that could get us to zero carbon electricity by 2050. If we can get to zero carbon electricity or close to zero carbon electricity by 2050, we can get close to, close to zero uh, carbon transport. And if on top of that we stop deforestation, there's absolutely no reason why uh, we shouldn't do that. It's 50% cuts for the world, 80% cuts for uh, the rich world. It is technology, technologically feasible with technologies that we know about. We can price those and put uh, cost to them. We've got time to do it. France went uh, from very little nuclear to 75% nuclear in about 20 years. Germany's gone from um, um, quite small amounts of uh, onshore wind to about 50% onshore wind in some parts of Germany. If you want to do these things, you can do them quickly at uh, fairly reasonable cost. So it's actually analytically wrong to say that 80% uh, reduction for rich countries, 50% for the world as a whole, is not achievable. And as I said at the end, if that's what you believe, then put your hand up and say that uh, my analysis is on the basis of that remark that the world should move into very risky territory. But the trouble is, as I said, people don't usually finish that paragraph. Um, I think there's a will, certainly, for more questions. Um, yes, gentleman at the back with his hand right up. Good evening. I'm Amadine C. Safe from the Millennium Partnership. You said that the EU emission trading scheme and similar schemes cover up to, cover up to over... 50% of emissions. So what role of energy do you think things like domestic trading, tr trading emission quotas and personal carbon analysis might play in this? Thank you. Gentleman at the very back. Thank you very much. Uh, you were saying that uh, there needs to be a radical change uh, in technologies there, um, but, uh, but not necessarily a radical change in lifestyle. Um, my change in lifestyle seems to be that I'm sitting under an air conditioning unit, um, which is odd for February. But um, is that not uh, slightly a soft option, saying that uh, it's easier to change technology rather than uh, trying to persuade people to change their behaviour? Thank you. We'll have to keep the questions very crisp now because we're going to run out of time in a moment. Yes. Hi there, uh, Richard Rourke. Um, we've had very starkly contrasting views of future energy supplies in the previous two speakers on this series, uh, Lord Oxborough and uh, Professor Clare, um, and uh, irrespective of who you choose to believe, we're living in a world today of high energy prices, and if you saw the FT today, you're seeing the spillover into um, implications for biofuels and, and food security. Uh, what's your own view on um, energy prices remaining high or even going higher as regards um, uh, mitigation or adaptation uh, strategies? Okay, and um, yes. Thank you very much for the uh, talk this evening. I'll stand up so you can see who I am. Uh, my name is Tom Riley. Um, my question is very simple. Is the British government doing enough? And what more would you expect the British government to do? Okay, one last question. Um, yes, please. Um, just on the subject of... Uh, sorry. William Wong from the RSA. Um, just on the subject that you touched upon, um, possible citizens-led revote if we feel we really let down by institutions and government what might the worst case scenario be? Okay. Worst case of scenario. Yeah. Uh, Citizens let revote. 
if we feel we really get let down by governments and institutions over the subject. Okay, let me just ask you one final, final question, um, and it's this. Um, it's, about, it's about coal. I'm carrying on. You see, I organise this lecture. At least I can ask one question. You know, ten of you have asked questions already, so I think, you know, having put the effort in, I can ask one short question. And it's about coal. I mean, clearly, it's going to be crucial to have um, uh, 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 serious carbon capture and storage systems in place if India and China are going to meet targets that we are beginning to talk about. And my question is very simple. How far are we from such commercially viable technologies? Because if you read the press on these things, the story is quite divided. So that's a simple, straightforward. Yep. Um, firstly, on uh, domestic quotas, in addition to the EU ETS, um, I think what we should be looking for, um, from the point of view of efficiency, keeping these costs down, and bad policy, of course, can make costs higher, we should be looking for... Um, uh, a common price of carbon across the board and a price of carbon that's reasonably clear. Um, so I think what we don't want to do is to have one trading scheme or one tax scheme falling over another. So if we have <coughs> excuse me, taxes, taxes on petrol in one part of the economy, I think that's perfectly okay. That's uh, a price for carbon through taxation. Now, complicated to work out what the tax for carbon on petrol really is in the context of lots of congestion or so on, and so on, but that's another story. You can, have price, you can have prices of carbon through taxes in some part of the economy and prices through trading in another part, but you want to keep it as clear as possible, and what worries me about domestic uh, quota schemes is that you're cascading one kind of system on top of another, and I think it's best to keep it as clear as you uh, possibly can. I do think that some kind of domestic quotas could have another advantage, although I don't think it's the price-based efficiency one, and that it helps people uh, understand what they're doing. And most people, um, at least, for example, through the efficiency of their house, don't necessarily have a very good understanding of what they're doing or what the alternatives could be. So I think part of this story will be people understanding what options that they can follow and understanding what responsible behaviour is. And I think economists um, think first of incentives and incentives operating through prices and taxes. And I think the world would be a much more inefficient place if they uh, thought otherwise. Um, at the same time, I think economists should also think much more explicitly in their analytical structures about the changing of preferences. We try to change as matters of policy or we try to get involved in discussions of uh, changes in preferences um, a great deal. Drugs, alcohol, smoking, exercise, obesity, recycling. These are all areas, very not small areas, big areas, where governments get involved in discussions and people get involved in discussions about what responsible behaviour is. And they can actually change behaviour. Now, what you can't do, as uh, I used to joke when I was chief economist of the World Bank, saying, I'm, here I am, I'm chief economist of the bank, I've come to change your preferences. And you have to be very careful about where you get the moral authority or whether you ever could get the moral authority to do that. Um, but I much prefer the John Stuart Mill story of government by discussion where people learn about what's responsible through talking about it in a clear and uh, rational and analytical and evidence-based way. So I do think there's a role for an understanding of what responsible behaviour means. And um, 
and that really is my response to the earlier question, which I, I guess I missed on, on lifestyles and so on. I think discussion of that is important, but my argument was that this doesn't have to deter on everybody changing lifestyles and making the politically pragmatic point that if it did, we'd lose. But I think understanding um, what responsible behaviour means is a very important part of that. And if domestic quotas helped a bit on that, <clears throat> then they could have a role. But I do worry about the cascading effect. <clears throat> so, um, sorry, the changing behaviour was the, the second question. So I've, given, I've said what I have to say about changing in behaviour. I do think it's uh, important. I do think that we have to discuss it. But we can actually get there through technologies and we can get through the technology, to the technologies by uh, pricing and investment in the uh, technology. Uh, future energy supplies, well, um, as I argued in, 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 the, in the talk, there's plenty of stuff out there which can overwhelm the, uh, the atmosphere and lead to uh, extreme global warming. So if your question about the availability of supplies is the question, is there enough to cook the planet, then the answer is plenty. Um, so we can't rely on that route, as it were, to, uh, to control uh, the problem. What do I think the future price of oil and uh, you know, equivalent gas and so on will be? Well, the, um, there are an awful lot of technologies that become profitable with oil prices at $100 uh, dollars a barrel. I mean, converting coal to oil, uh, you know, converting coal to liquid is uh, presumed probably profitable at those kind of prices. Will they stay that way? Um, my guess is not. I mean, the marginal cost of extracting oil, oil from oil shale, and the Canadian oil shales have probably got enough deposits or deposits similar to Saudi Arabia, and uh, it's all a bit frightening because the cost of and the energy involved in extracting this is uh, pretty worrying. But you probably can uh, get at that source of oil for probably $40 or so a barrel if you look at the marginal cost. So there is something, as it were, over these next few years, or next, say, not few, but next, say, 30 or 40 years, putting a lid on the price, and that's the uh, marginal cost of extraction from these kinds of sources. So I actually, I, I would say somewhere between $50 and $100 a barrel over the, over the future might be the right kind uh, of range. But as I say, I'm not in the business of predicting euro-dollar exchange rates or prices of oil. But you can think about it one way through these uh, marginal costs. I worry about biofuels of the first generation. Um, I've done worked a lot of my, lot of my life in uh, North India and uh, sugar in North India competes with land for rice and uh, wheat. Um, coal, uh, corn cereal-based ethanol seems to me uh, to be daft in terms of uh, the gains that you, you get from it. On the other hand, um, I do think that, um, for example, if you're talking about powering aeroplanes, and we won't stop people flying. Uh, we want much more efficient aeroplanes, of course, um, but I think we ought to be looking for um, some sort of biofuels for aeroplanes. Um, and I think the second-generation biofuels is what we have to look for. Crops like uh, Jatropha, cellulosic, uh, ethanol, and so on, Let's investigate those and see what the uh, overall uh, effect on food markets of those might be. Jetrofa is a crop like uh, castor oil that grows in semi-arid parts of the world and could actually, in principle, if you're lucky and do it well and the technologies work, you could actually use it to uh, produce uh, biodiesels 
and um, it uh, could actually uh, help uh, arrest deforestation in some parts of the world. So there are possibilities of biofuels. Um, I think we may well need them for uh, aeroplanes and uh, I think we have to uh, look very closely at the second generation and uh, the first generation I think is a serious problem. Is the UK government doing enough? Um, well, it's difficult to answer a question like that. Has the UK government moved a long way? Is it supporting the right things? Is it exploring the right kind of technologies? I think the answer to all those questions is yes. Um, if you look at uh, the kind of targets that we're talking about now and talking about increases from 60 to 80 percent by 2050, if you look at the support for the EU policies of the overall cuts in um, overall cuts in reductions by 2020, the UK government has been uh, supporting those and has taken note of the prices for uh, carbon that would follow from that. It's been honest with itself about what these kinds of targets imply for the price of carbon. Um, I would like to see uh, a number of directions of the kind I've described. I already said that, uh, that um, I would like to see the 80% target expressed clearly and soon. I believe that will happen. I think the UK could uh, play a still stronger role in pursuing carbon capture and storage for coal, in uh, pursuing second-generation biofuels, encouraging energy efficiency and so on. So these are areas where I think it, uh, the government could move further, but I believe actually it is moving further and I think the institutional innovation of the Climate Change Committee is extremely important. It is an unusual institutional innovation where you deliberately create an institution which is charged with holding your feet to the fire on this very important issue. And I think it was, uh, and I believe that it Adair Turner, who is the chair of that committee appointed a couple of weeks ago, um, is the kind of person who won't be worried about um, uh, standing up and saying, uh, well, you know, going all right here but not going all right there, try this one, try that one, try that technology, try that price mechanism. I think there's an institutional structure that's con that can deliver the kind of advice that we're looking for. I hope that the British government, and I believe it will, take a strong lead in the road from Bali to Copenhagen at the end of uh, 2009. But I do think it's important that public opinion keeps pressing government, whichever government it may be, on these uh, issues. Now, the last uh, question from the floor was citizen-led revolt. Uh, I couldn't quite work out what the worst-case scenario would be. There's a, a very unpleasant worst-case scenario if governments don't take a lead and we run into very dangerous territory on climate change. Um, was it a question about under what circumstances uh, should citizens break the law? Um, that's a very difficult, old and uh, deep one. Uh, there are some circumstances in which citizens should stand up and be counted. My PhD supervisor was asked of the 1960s when he was writing a reference for somebody who was being considered by the Secret Service. He was asked to say, are there any circumstances under which this man they were men in the Secret Service then, under which this man would betray his country. And Jim, bless him, wrote to the bottom, I hope so. Um, <laughs> but does that mean, I think, we should have uh, civil disobedience over this issue? Um, I don't think so. I, 
I'm, I believe in the power of rational argument and uh, we just have to keep going because what are the alternatives? And I think we just have to keep going. Uh, I may not have understood the question. The um, coal and carbon capture and storage for coal. Um, currently, there are quite a lot of small-scale experimental carbon capture and storage plants, which, at least for gas, seem to be working. Um, but we need to demonstrate on a commercial scale, 300, 400 megawatt yeah. coal-fired power stations, that this can work. Uh, we need to demonstrate that there are enough holes in the ground uh, to put all that carbon uh, uh, dioxide in. Uh, we will need a uh, pipeline infrastructure considerably larger than natural gas infrastructure than we have. But all these things are investments mm. that you can make if you've got 40, 30, 40 years to make them and you start now. Um, but you haven't got 30 or 40 years before you start. But uh, if you start now doing lots of things uh, that you can do, like energy efficiency and stopping deforestation quickly, then at the same time you build up these technologies. I think we have to demonstrate those technologies <coughs> within 10 years. Otherwise, we'll have missed a lot of the boats of uh, energy investment, electricity, coal investment in these coming years. You have to demonstrate them quickly. We need a lot of them because they're different types of coal and they're different kinds of geology. Mm. So I think that we're moving much too slowly mm. in analysing and demonstrating this technology on commercial scale on the ground. The sums involved are not small, but uh, they are small in relation to the returns and uh, the damages if we don't get it right. If it turns out the carbon capture and storage for coal is far more problematic than we anticipate at the moment, then again we'd better know that sooner rather than later and uh, go on to uh, other things. Two things. One is I know many of you would still like to ask questions, but we're at the limits of our use of this room. So unfortunately, we have to draw procedures to a, a close and others have to go home and some of you are already voting with your feet and looking anxious as at the time. So it just remains for me to say really a couple of things. One is, I mean, I can't imagine a theme more important than the ones you've been talking about this evening and that you speak about them with such clarity and uh, wisdom and scholarship and research backing seems to me sort of inspiring for all of us here, Nick. And uh, all I can say is not only thank you for coming, but thank you for giving, as I said before, a lecture that is clearly a tour de force and where I think we're most of us very privileged to have heard it. <laughs>